Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Stephen Kotler, author of The Devil's Dictionary. I wonder if you could start by telling us something about yourself and how you got started on this project. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a writer, uh, an author. I, I, was, I started out as a journalist, and I'm also the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. We're a neurobiology research and training organization that studies the science of peak human performance. So what does it take to perform at our very best? Um, and... Uh, the, or you asked me, the second half of the question was the origin of the Devil's Dictionary, where did it come from? Correct? So uh, half of my books have been about sort of accelerating technology and their impact on the world, half of my nonfiction books. And five or six years ago, I was working on a book on what the major changes that were going to occur over the next 10 years under sort of under the guise of exponentially accelerating technology, which really accelerated technology. And I was trying to write this nonfiction book and trying to imagine what the future might look like with all these technologies in it at once and the amount of change that was coming. And I found that I couldn't even hold the picture in my head. So I actually paused the nonfiction book, took a break, created a world, set a story in that world, and then wrote a couple books um, in that world. So I'd get a handle on, on like where technology was going. And that was sort of the origin story of this book in the first place. That's where uh, the characters came from and the ideas came from. Now, you have a lot of really interesting characters, but tell us about Lion Zorn. Lion Zorn is our protagonist, and he is a, known as an M tracker, an empathy tracker. Thanks to a, a genetic mutation, he's been born with a wildly expanded sense of empathy. So he can feel for all people, but he also feels for plants and animals and ecosystems. And his empathy isn't just individual, it's cultural. So he can sort of feel how emotions end up shaping culture. And it allows him to sort of 
get a sense for where the future is going. And in the world where the story is set about 10 to 15 years uh, from now, um, he's basically got a job as sort of a cool hunter or what today you would call a cool hunter. Somebody who goes out and spots trends and helps corporations get ahead of trends. He goes out and does the same thing, sort of using his empathetic powers. And that's sort of where the book starts. He's hired by a, a shadow corporation to investigate uh, very strange occurrences that are happening at a, at a national park. New species never before seen on Earth are showing up at a national park. And, and he's sort of brought in to try to figure this out. Now, in this future, do you think people who have or possess that talent will be at the high level of advancement? I don't know if it's a high level advancement. What I what I know is that we live in a historically, um, from a very big perspective, historically unlikely time where Homo sapiens are the only human species um, or the only hominid species. This is really unusual. In history, there were usually lots of hominid species sort of running around at the same time were sort of the last remaining one. But it, it doesn't take much from a genetics perspective to start to fracture the species. And people who feel a wildly expanded sense of empathy are going to gain certain advantages, but it's also going to come with certain disadvantages as well, I think. Now, how is this book a peek into the future? Well, what I wanted to do when I, w- when I was sitting down to write The Devil's Dictionary, I have a very strong belief, both from my work on human performance and, and sort of my work on imagination, creativity, all, the, all those kind of subjects, that if you can't imagine the future, you don't have a chance of creating the future. And I wanted to imagine a world where our biggest environmental challenges, species die off, climate change, those sorts of problems had been solved. I wasn't interested in sort of a perfect utopia. I wanted a real world scenario. And so I asked myself, what are the changes that are going to have to take place in society to bring about this future? So I think it's a look into the future at a lot of the different sort of technologies and and, and whatnot that are here today and that are going to continue to advance, but it's also a look at an environmentally friendlier future. Now, you talk about virtual reality in your book. Can you give us a little peek into that virtual reality? Well, virtual reality is, is, is one of many technologies that are here today that are sort of advancing very, very, very quickly. And already, I, so my organization, the Flow Research Collective, does, has a, we, we do research with a company called Limitless Flight, and they have the most real is, I guess, the description I could give it, a base jumping, skydiving, wingsuit flying uh, simulation ever. And you put on a, a giant virtual reality helmet and you're literally teleported and you feel like when 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 the screens come up, you are standing in the cargo bay of a plane, and you're fifteen thousand feet in the air, and the back of the bay drops, and you have to you're standing over a giant canyon. And I just had this experience last week. We were doing some research together, and it's terrifying. It's fully immersive. It is hard to jump, and you know it's virtual reality. Like you know you're wearing a helmet, you know you're standing on flat ground, and it's still hard to jump forward in that situation. So virtual reality is getting very, very, very uh, lifelike and, and real. So do you think people will be learning 
more in that virtual reality world? So this is this is actually research we're 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 doing. Uh, so let me. I have to back up and explain a little bit about the work I do on human performance. I study a state of consciousness known as flow. You may know it as being in the zone or runner's high. It's any of those moments of sort of rapt attention and total absorption when you get so focused on what you're doing, everything else just starts to disappear and just melt away. That's known as flow. Flow is optimal performance. It shows up in, in every human being, right? It's hardwired into us. And among the many skills that are amplified in flow, learning skyrockets. So in studies run by the U.S. Department of Defense, when they drop soldiers into flow, they learn 250 to 500% faster than normal. We also know that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. So if you're trying to, to get more peak performance, more flow in your life, these triggers are your toolkit. Now, video games are pretty good at getting at flows triggers, but virtual reality is excellent at it. So we have teamed up. This is exactly the research I was, um, we're starting to do with, the, with Jump. We've teamed up with a number of VR companies. And what we're trying to do is build a VR-based high flow, accelerated learning environment. Our goal is worker retraining because technology is moving so quickly. So many people are needing to be trained up in skills. And one growing concern is autonomous cars, autonomous trucks are here and they're hitting our streets. Trucking is the largest employer in America. And by 2045 or so, um, most of those drivers are going to need to be retrained because trucking is going to be done by autonomous vehicles. So how can you create a, a, an environment using VR that will accelerate that kind of worker retraining? Um, we believe that's totally possible. And so we're working on that. This same platform, while I don't want to do this work myself, can be used in education in schools and things like that. And we're not the only people who are working on something like this. There's a lot of different teams working on it um, as well. I don't want to work in education because I'm not interested in getting into a curriculum battle with parents, which is usually what happens when you get into education. And I think that's, I, you know, somebody smarter than me can, can figure out what we need to teach our children, but I can, but I can work on the accelerated learning platform that enables it. Now you also talk about the holograms. Tell us more about that. So this is actually a, a, a technology. It was first dreamed up in the in the TV show Star Trek, right? Um, when you saw like holodecks and, and fully immersive holographic worlds, and a uh, bunch of people got inspired by Star Trek and have been working on holodecks, basically like fully immersive hologram suites, and um, the. Timeline is a little up in the air, but literally they're thinking that by like 2030, early 2030s, these are going to start showing up in maybe amusement parks and the houses of the very wealthy. And, you know, it'll trickle down to the rest of us from there. So uh, holograms are coming. We'll see, I mean, you'll see things like there's in, in Last Hango in cyberspace, the characters go into a restaurant where the menu holographically projects the dishes above the table so you can see what you're ordering. Those kinds of things are, are coming, which is, which is ridiculous, but it's true. Now, who is really influential in your life concerning how you became who you are, the writer? When you ask who's really influential, you're asking like writers I looked up to and just admired and tried to write like or people I, I had the good fortune to, to study with and learn from directly. 
people you had the good uh, influence with studying with? So by far, um, that has to go to John Barth, who is known as the sort of the godfather of the metafiction movement here in America. He founded, was the one of the founders of the Johns Hopkins Graduate Writing Sam's program where, where I went to graduate school. And he was an enormous influence on me. So I was trained as a poet. And when I came into fiction writing, um, it was not a lot of people knew what I was doing. I was really pushing hard on language. This is not totally visible in any of the work that you, you know, in devil's dictionary or whatever. But if you look at my early work, you can see this and nobody really knew what I was doing. They didn't, my, they, I really like, this is a long, long answer, but, um, when I was a senior in high school, my senior project was a collection of poems that offended uh, my professor and they literally tried to fail me. And then when I got to college, they actually threw me out of the creative writing department. And when I finally got to grad school, which was at Hopkins, I had almost everybody I knew in the world had said, don't be a writer. I'd been thrown out of, out of the creative writing department in college. Um, I was invited back later, but I was, I was tossed out. I had these issues in high school and nobody, including my parents, right, thought it was a good idea that I should pursue this. And I kept in my back of my mind, I was like, I don't think anybody knows what I'm doing. But there's this guy at Hopkins, John Barth, who has invented the American metafiction movement, which I was sort of trying to write inside of, I guess. And I'm going to go to Hopkins. And if he likes my work, um, I'm going to be a writer. And if he doesn't like my work, I'm out. I'm done. Because I didn't think there was anybody else who could evaluate it fairly. And it took me three years to get into Hopkins. The program is very, it's small, it's exclusive. They let like nine people in a year and, and five of those go to alumni. So it's a really small pool of people that who get chosen for the program. It took forever for me to get in. And everybody else in the program, I turned in my first uh, couple of chapters from my first novel. Everybody else in the program hated it. Literally like 20 students couldn't stand it, hated it. But John Barth loved it, thought it was great and encouraged me. And so I became a writer that ended up becoming my first book, with he, which he ended up blurbing. And if it wasn't, I mean, he taught me a lot of stuff that's really, really crucial. But if it wasn't for that vote of confidence, I would have never ended up being a writer in the end. That's a great story. Now, you also deal with another technology that I want you to talk about in your book, artificial intelligence, creating life from scratch. Well... I was playing with a blend of two technologies, artificial intelligence and synthetic biology and creating life from scratch. So let me back into artificial intelligence a little bit. One of the things that we learned during COVID, and this has been going on for a while, but, you can, but it got very visible during COVID, is that you can use artificial intelligence for drug discovery. And it's because artificial intelligence can, can sort of mix and match and test out compounds in, inside a computer in silico um, a lot faster, safer, easier than we can do it out in the real world in, in animals or in humans. And so that has massively accelerated drug discovery. There are a couple of companies that have worked on voice-activated interfaces with these artificial intelligences. So you can literally, these machines exist uh, today. This is, this is real, where there are machines that you can walk up to and say, hey, I need a new drug that's going to treat diabetes. I'm looking for it in these class of molecules. I need it 
to not have these side effects, blah, blah, blah. And you can literally just sort of talk what your order into the artificial intelligence and it will start working on creating it. So that, that all exists today. Synthetic biology is, we've all heard of the human genome project. This was a project to read the human genome, read out all the letters of the human genome. 10 years after that project had started, they started something called the Human Genome Write Project. This is the design to try to write a human genome from scratch. This is the difference between reading genomics and sort of synthetic biology. It allows you to basically create life from scratch by reassembling genomes. They've done this work in bacteria. They've done it in yeast. um, And it's getting to larger and larger organisms. So what I said is at some point in the future, somebody is going to put these technologies together and you're going to have an AI that can create life from scratch. And you're literally going to be able to talk to it and talk about what kinds of creatures you're interested in creating. And this is sort of both wondrous and horrifying. And I was very interested in the idea from an environmental and ecological point of view, because uh, one of the largest threats to the environment is invasive and exotic species. When you take species that are not native to a place and transplant them to the place, they sometimes they don't have any natural predators or enemies and they can overrun ecosystems. So one of the greatest threats to the environment is exotic species. And I figured that if you had a technology that could create life from scratch, that was going to be very problematic from an environmental perspective. And that's what I wanted to talk about there. Now, would you classify this book as a sci-fi thriller? Well, I, it's te- if, if you're going to ask me technically, I'm going to call it a cyberpunk thriller, but nobody knows what the hell cyberpunk is anymore. But cyberpunk was this genre of sort of noir, dark, dark, sort of noirish sci-fi. It showed up in the early 1990s. We've seen it in the movie Blade Runner and, and Terminator and things like that. Uh, but the idea was a, a near-term future sci-fi thriller. Um, and that's sort of the category. But I think it's, I think of it as sci-fi, but it's very near-term future, right? It's, a, it's 10 years in the future and it's set on planet Earth and there are, you know, no spaceships or aliens or things like that. Now, you talk about this oppositional movement in your book. Give us a, a little peek into that. So this is uh, this is <laughs> it's going to be strange, but uh, so one, I started looking at a at a, at a future where um, if you're going to protect the planet, if we're really going to save the environment, the theme of the book is empathy for all, which is empathy for all humans, of course, but also for plants, animals, and ecosystems. And it's a world where a large swatch of the population now believes plants, animals, and ecosystems deserve equal rights and to be treated with the exact same respect as humans. This, of course, produces a backlash movement. And so there's an empathy for all movement. And then there's a humans first movement where they people are, you know, what what is known in an environmental and ecological and animal rights movements is speciesism, right? The, the belief that humans are the dominant species on Earth, the superior species, and we have extra rights and all that stuff. And um, that's the humans first movement. And, and they're up against this empathy for all movement that believes that, that you know, all all creatures deserve 
love and respect and, and, and whatnot. So that's, um, and I think that is certainly coming um, in, in, if we are going to face the critical environmental challenges that we now face, we definitely have to start feeling more empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems. So I think that some version of that is in our future, I think. Now, you decided to put gangsters in your book. Tell us about some of those characters and how how will they fit into this new world? So the at the center of the book is, well, first let me explain an idea out of uh, the environmental movement known as mega linkages. So one of the biggest problems facing plants, animals, and ecosystems today is habitat fragmentation. This is not anything new. We've known since the 60s, 1960s, that habitat fragmentation was a huge environmental problem. So since the 1970s, environmentalists have been lobbying for what are sometimes called mega linkages. These are huge interconnected national parks. So imagine taking all the national parks between Yellowstone National Park and the Yukon Peninsula and linking them together by like migration corridors and uh, and basically wildlands that allow animals to migrate north and south freely and plants can move as well. This is a really big deal for a bunch of environmental reasons that we don't have to go into here. But this idea has been around since the 70s. There's a Yellowstone to Yukon movement. They're actually starting to build that mega linkage. Um, this is a wildly well-adopted idea. The UN uh, backs it. And back in the 90s, Doug Tompkins, who founded a clothing company called Esprit and made a billion dollars, used most of that money to buy up enormous swatches of chili and try to create the world's first private mega linkage. And this, so this is all just history and, and, and science and whatnot. In my book, in the future, I've got two different billionaires. Um, one's neither are quite good guys. One's definitely a bad guy um, who are sort of, you asked about the bad guys. And they are, today, we've got Elon Musk, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos, all those billionaires sort of competing to go into space. Who's going to land on Mars or the moon or open this first space colony? It's this big kind of, we're going to get into space, this big ego display. And I figure 10, 15 years from now, we're going to have the same thing, except billionaires are battling to open the world's first mega linkages in their name. And that's the plot at the heart of uh, Devil's Dictionaries. There's two billionaires, and they're competing to create the world's first, first mega linkages. And each one has a very sort of radical, different environmental view of the future. And those are sort of my bad guys. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you're going to be working on? I have another book that is uh, coming out in February, February 28th, uh, called Nar Country, Growing Old, Stang Rad. It's a nonfiction book on peak performance aging. So how to kick ass until we kick the bucket. Well, we will be looking forward to that book. Again, we have been talking with Stephen Kotler, the author of The Devil's Dictionary. Thank you for being on our show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Lucky Land. 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.